don't know this by now. The book of Revelation is really not that hard to understand. I don't know if after 18 chapters of going through you would agree. I'm not bold enough to ask, but I trust that you'll find that it isn't. Why? Because it's the only book in the Bible that comes with the outline to interpreting the book right in the book. Chapter 1, verse 19. Jesus tells John to write the things which he had seen, past tense, the things which are presently, and then to write the things which shall be after this, future tense. And so, chapter 1, the things which John had seen, Jesus Christ, crucified, resurrected, and glorified. Chapters 2 and 3, seven letters to seven churches, which represent seven periods of church history, that which was taking place presently from John's perspective, present tense. And then chapter 4, through the end of the book, chapter 4, beginning with the phrase, after these things, or after this, speaking of things that are yet future. Things that will take place after the church is complete, when the church age is over. And so chapters 4 and 5, we see the church caught up to heaven. Jesus coming back the door opening, the trumpet sounding, the church being caught up, immediately being found in the Spirit. They're gathered in chapter 5 from every tribe, tongue, and nation under heaven. The only group of people that can say that is the church. The church clearly seen there. And then in chapters 6 through 19, as Jesus takes the scroll, the title deed to the earth, and begins to loose the seals... A period of time begins on planet earth that is yet future for us called the tribulation. Seven years where God will pour out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting, God-hating, sinful world. And we looked at, for the past several weeks, the things that will happen on earth during that seven-year period of time. While the church is there in heaven, safely tucked in God's presence, given our glorified bodies, while God pours out wrath on those that have refused His call for mercy on planet Earth. And as we come to chapter 19, again, verse 1 there begins with the same phrase. He says, and after these things, the same words that were used in chapter 1, verse 19, what will take place after this? So what will take place after these things? That is, after the tribulation is complete. After those last seven vials of God's wrath are poured out upon planet earth. And Babylon is judged, that system that has defiled all things on planet earth. And the judgment of God is complete. What happens after these things? John says, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying hallelujah now the first six verses here of chapter 19 what they give to us is heaven's response to all that we've seen happen on earth during the tribulation and it tells me as we look at here in these first six verses and we hear the four voices or we hear the voices of four different groups of people The first voice is that of much people in heaven. 
The second voice that we hear is that of the four and twenty elders and the four beasts, those that represent the government of heaven. The third voice we hear is, it says, that of uh, out of the throne, a voice that comes out of the throne. And I think most likely that that represents the church because Jesus said that we will be, it will be given to us to sit with him in his throne, that we will rule and reign with him. I believe that's the voice of the church. And then finally, the voice of a great multitude that most likely represents the angelic host. So a, a congruent agreement of all those that are in heaven, represented by every group, they are aware of what has taken place on planet earth. And these verses give to us their response to all that's happened, all that they've taken in. And so this first group responds, and it says that he heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Hallelujah. Uh, You know, I found it interesting as I read that phrase, that sentence there. It says, a voice of much people. Do you see that? Do you notice that? I think that is, is specific, that that isn't an error, that that isn't just King James language, but that that's there, it says it that way on purpose, that it was a single voice, it was a voice, but it was of much people there in heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't wait to go to heaven. I'm so looking forward to that day that we are there. Many of you are aware that we are on the cusp of an election year. And all of the talking heads are beginning to appear on the screens. And everybody's offering their solution to all of the world problems. What are we going to do about the economic crisis that we're in? Whose fault is it that we're in this place? And where do we go from here? What is to be our strategy militarily moving forward? How are we going to conduct ourselves in the world stage and, you know, politically and all the rest? How are we going to handle that? And everybody's presenting their ideas and their thoughts and their philosophies. What is the role of the United States of America in humanitarian aid around the globe? Where do we fit into all of this? And everybody's voices are thundering out their opinions based on perhaps their political backgrounds or the demographics of who they're trying to reach or whatever it is that's driving these things. The voices are incessantly beginning to pour into the ear gates of our lives and drive us crazy. I don't know about you. But I find it so comforting and so drawing then in heaven it isn't going to be the voices of many different people offering their opinions and their responses to the things that are taking place, but it will be a voice of much people. That in heaven there will be absolute agreement, absolute oneness, absolute solidarity to the existence of what and why things take place. And it will be peace. There will be no wolf blitzer. Or Shepherd Smith, you know, and all the rest. But it will just be perfect harmony, perfect congruency. You know, that's one of the things that I absolutely love about the Bible. You know, you take the Bible and, and, you know, we just look at it as we have this book, you know, and we read these words. But if you really think about what what it is that you hold in your hand, it was written by 40 different earthly authors over a period of more than 1,500 years. It was done on three different continents of the planet all at different times. 
Some of those men that God employed to do it, some of them were kings and those in the higher echelons of what we would call world society. Others were penned by shepherds and peasants, those that were on the lowest end of things. Some from political backgrounds of one sort and one from another. People of all different walks and takes of life, tax collectors, military rulers, peasants, you know, kings, all of these various people that have all of these various outlooks on things and why things are the way they are, they all had a part to play as God's spirit breathed into them and inspired them to record the things that we have in our lap right now. And yet all of these people from all of these places and all of these backgrounds speak with one voice concerning the things of God. That's absolutely unheard of, really, if you think about it. What if, and imagine with me for one minute, and this is impossible, but just put yourself there. What if you could turn on the news tonight and you could sit and you could watch the tribulation take place on TV? And it was being covered by CNN and Fox News and, you know, all the different networks. And everybody had their part and their cameras rolling and all of the tribulation unfolded and you watched it. And in between the, you know, people giving their commentary and their analysis and, you know, the video rolling of the actual destruction taking place, you got to hear the opinions of various people upon the planet. Here we are reporting live and I'm Wolf Blitzer and here I have, you know, this professor from Yale on the one hand and and a Buddhist monk and a Jewish rabbi and a born-again Christian and we're going to talk about the things that we're seeing here. And each of them begins to weigh in on all of the actions that are taking place. The whys, the hows, the what happens next. And everybody's responding and reacting to all that has taken place in this tribulation that's just happened on planet Earth. And you're watching all of this. Can you imagine what that would be like? Well, it's their fault, and they did this, and it's this and that, and it's not, you know, it's not the God thing. And you know, everybody weighing in this thing. Well, for seven years in heaven, all of God's people, all of God's dominion is going to watch what takes place on planet Earth. And their response is being given to us here in these verses. All of the talking heads, all of the various departments are going to weigh in on what they just saw on Earth. The first group, again, is this multitude of much people. And the first words out of their mouth as they see these things is, Hallelujah. It's the first time in the New Testament that this word is used. It means praise our God. That's what hallelujah means. Praise, hallel, you is our, and yah is Yahweh or God. Praise our God. They look at this thing and the voice, the single voice of many people, they say praise our God. And then with one voice, they weigh in on the values of heaven. They say salvation and glory, and honor, and power unto the Lord our God. The things, the opinions that are unanimously held in heaven are, first of all, that praise belongs unto God. Second of all, that salvation is of God, that man cannot save himself, he would not save himself, he's not able to save himself, and salvation is of God. That glory belongs only to God. There is no man, there is no function, there is no policy, there is no kingdom in an earthly sense that is worthy or able to bear up any glory at all. But all glory only belongs unto God. That honor becomes him. 
That because of who he is and because of what he's done and because of the very nature that he possesses and that he has revealed and shown and the grace that has been reflected from that nature, that because of all that, he is becoming of honor, that all honor belongs unto him and that all power belongs to him. That it isn't the man who holds society in his hand because of his independent wealth. It isn't the politician who knows how to wheel and deal and get things done and to move and to shake from nation to nation. None of that is any power at all in sight of God, but that all power, all dominion, all potency belongs only to him. And the voice of those in heaven that have seen all things take place, that recognize and understand what is happening, their voice as they cry out and respond to what has happened is hallelujah. Glory, salvation, honor, and power belong to him. Several years ago, I was reading the Christmas story, going through Matthew's gospel, and something struck me. I read where the angel Gabriel came and told the shepherds what was about to happen. Imagine those shepherds out there in the field, and just like any other night, something going on a star in the sky and then all of a sudden this angelic host appears and the cry the thing that the angel said to these shepherds struck me i'd heard it my whole life seen it on every christmas card i ever read heard it in every christmas pageant and christmas message that there ever was but i saw these words glory to god in the highest and on earth peace towards men And what had previously always just been an introduction or a proclamation, for the first time I saw it as a recipe, a word of instruction. It isn't just glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. No, 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 but rather it's glory to God in the highest and then peace on earth, goodwill towards men. That peace on earth will be the result of glory being given to God. It isn't just a proclamation. It's an order. It's a thing. And here we see this happening. On earth, chaos, destruction. Dismal outlook. On earth, one voice glorifying God. And a presence of perfect peace in response. They go on in verse 2 and they say, For true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. Now, as you know, if you've been tracking along with us through Revelation, this is not the first time that this phrase has been used by those in heaven that are observing all that God is doing. They look at the decimation, the destruction, the wrath, the fury of God that's being poured out on earth. And their response as they see it is not, don't you think you're going a little hard on them there, Lord? But as they see it, they say, no, it's just and it's equal. True and righteous are your judgments, O Lord, for you have judged the great whore. And you've handed out to her what she had coming. There's a lot of talk about hell these days in Christian circles. There's a movement that isn't new. It's gaining steam, but it isn't new. It's been around for a long time. Of those even Christian people, those that claim to be Bible-believing, born-again Christians, that make the claim that there is no hell, or, 
to buffer that and tamper that statement down a little bit, they'll say, well, hell isn't what the Bible makes it out to be or what the church has made it out to be. That hell is not a place of eternal torment, a place of judgment and wrath and eternal suffering, but rather it's a place of perhaps punitive measure. A place of purging, a sort of purgatory, if you would, where man is corrected, reprimanded, adjusted, but then ultimately, in the end, love wins, you know. That a God of love certainly would never send someone to an eternal destiny of hell. And that is something that is gaining steam. And I believe it's a sign of the times as people realize the days that we're in and what's coming, and it's a source of comfort to many. But I also find it interesting that the Apostle John, who is the author of this book of Revelation that we're studying here tonight. John, this man who was the only one of Jesus' disciples, of the twelve that followed him, John was the only one that was there at the cross. All of the others forsook him and fled. And it was only John that with his earthly, visible eyes saw Jesus bleeding out on the ground as his life left him for the sake of none other than John who was standing there himself realizing it. John, the only one that heard the words that Jesus echoed as he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It was only John that was there. And for that reason, John was called... The apostle of love. He tells us himself that he was the disciple that Jesus loved. He had an acuteness, an awareness of the love of God above any of the others. John also wrote 1 John, which is the epistle of love. So not only was he the apostle of love, he wrote the epistle of love. It was John that said that God is love and in him is no darkness at all. And he, complete, he, you know, he talks about the love of God and what it means to be filled with the love of God and to be affected and then giving away the love of God. Tradition tells us that when John came back from Patmos after writing the book of Revelation, well into his 90s, he wasn't strong enough to walk anymore, so they carried him on a stretcher from city to city where he would meet and he would address the churches at the end of his life. And as the whole of the community would gather together to hear what this last living apostle had to say, they would bring him forward. And with whatever strength he had left, he would say one sentence. He would say, brethren, love one another. And then they would carry him out. And that was the whole of his message, realizing the weight and the power the importance of it. The apostle of love, who wrote the epistle of love, whose message was love, this man that was consumed by God's love, wrote stronger words about an eternal hell than anybody else in the Bible. Onios post eonios, forever and forever. The smoke of her burning, the torment of those that take the mark of the beast. Listen, in the end, love wins. Love will judge sin. And love will pour out wrath on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. And that is not to put us in quaking fear of a tormentuous God. But rather it's to put in us an urgency that Jesus Christ has spilled out his blood so that nobody has to end up there. And God has given us his spirit and the anointing and the unction, the power to speak to those that are headed to that place, that none should perish. And God himself says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. 
So may it not be unto us or to the church or to any to say, well, no, a God of love will not send someone to hell. Listen, a God of love did everything he could so that no one has to go to hell. And so rather than us explaining away what God has clearly said, rather let us use our energy to win those that are lost and perishing, that they be not thrown into eternal hell. True and righteous are your judgments. What God does will be equal. It will be fair. It will be righteous. There will not be one that says it wasn't equal. It wasn't fair. That that is not reflective of a God of love. There will not be one. True and righteous are your judgments. By the way, this is also true of the way that God deals in our life. We say, you know, it isn't really equitable. It's just not fair that perhaps I was overlooked for that position. It isn't fair that the circumstances and situation of my life reflect this, this, and this in light of the fact that someone else might have this, this, and this. The sickness that I've experienced or that has touched my family or the loss that I've endured, it isn't fair, God. And when I get to heaven, I've got a few questions for the way that he chose to do things for me. The hardships, the setbacks, it just wasn't equitable. Listen, you will say when you understand, when you see, when you understand the things now that you can't and you see the things that you just can't see, you'll look at him and you'll say, true and righteous were your judgments. Oh, Lord, it was perfect. You knew exactly what I needed. You knew exactly what you were doing. You truly did have one hand on the thermometer and the other hand on the thermostat. And it was perfectly calculated and measured and all glory to you. It was perfect. True and righteous are your judgments. And it says, and again they said, Alleluia. Praise our God. And her smoke rose up forever and ever. Well, in verse 4, the second voice, it says, And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen. Hallelujah. They take in all that has happened on earth. They see the smoke of Babylon rising. They're cognizant and aware of every detail that has taken place, every life that has been lost, every drop of blood that has been spilled, and their response is, Amen. It means, so be it. The government of heaven in agreement with what God has done, and then they say, they echo the voice of that multitude, and they say, Hallelujah. Praise to our God. And then the third voice, a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. Again, this voice, this third voice, most likely that of the church, that of you and I, those that have been saved by grace, that escaped the wrath and torment that was poured out in those chapters. As we are there aware that we should have been on earth, that we should have been a partaker of that judgment. That we were under the wrath of God, but by the grace, by the love that God had, he sent his son to pour out his blood and save us from our sins. That by faith, through his grace, we might be partakers of his inheritance. And as we sit with him in his throne, as we rule and reign with him, not just redeemed and allowed into heaven, but given that authority, that place of ruling, reigning with him, the bride of Christ married to him. We will look on what he's done and we will say, hallelujah. Praise our God. That's the same thing. They say, praise our God. 
Because church, we're weird, right? Church has always got to be different. They don't say hallelujah like everyone else. They say praise God. They define it. That's what churches do. We define things, you know. They say praise our God, all ye his servants. And ye that fear him, both small and great. And then verse 6, the fourth voice that it says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings. And that's why I think it's the angels, because this just goes beyond the human, you know. The, it might not be. I'm, I'm not dogmatic about it, but they say, Hallelujah. For the Lord God, omnipotent. That means all-powerful. Omnipotence is a trait that is given to God throughout the scripture, that there is nothing, he says, that is too hard for me. To the prophet Jeremiah, God said, I am the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? And over and over again, God throughout the Bible declaring and showing that there is nothing that's outside of his power. Whether it be to tackle the toughest situation or whether it be to win the hardest of hearts. God is able. Don't give up. Don't stop praying, Christian. Don't stop trusting. Don't stop hoping. Start believing. Because he is able. And, and you know, that, that gets me to a point. You know, I understand that he's able. My struggle oftentimes is that, is he willing? I know he's able. Is he willing? And the Bible says that all of the promises of God in Jesus Christ are yea and amen. And if you see it in the scripture, if it's a promise that's yours, he'll do it for you. Don't stop praying for that lost loved one. Don't stop praying for that impossible situation. Don't stop praying for that hopeless thing. Believe. Well, in verses 7 through 9, we see, or 7 through 10 now, we see the marriage supper of the Lamb, or the wedding feast, if you would. It says, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. Now, when John the Baptist came on the scene, who was the forerunner, the one who was making ready all things and paving the way for Jesus to come, when John was confronted by the Pharisees that were asking him by what authority he did the things he did and asking him for, you know, kind of a, an explanation of his ministry and the things that he was doing. In John chapter 3, verse 29, John responded to them and he said, He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. And he was speaking of Jesus. But the friend of the bridegroom, speaking of himself which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice, and this my joy therefore is fulfilled. And he said, he must increase and I must decrease. 
And he spoke of his ministry as the forerunner of Christ, as the friend of the bridegroom who was going before and making and preparing the way for the bridegroom. And he introduced this concept in terms of Christ's relationship to his church, and he put it in the context of a bridegroom and a bride. And that's the first time in the New Testament that that picture is made there of the church and Jesus and the relationship that we have. In John chapter 14, just a few days before Jesus would go to the cross, Jesus spoke to his disciples. And he said to them, as he was there with them in the upper room, waiting for uh, you, you know, that time that he would go to the cross, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, Don't let your heart be troubled. He said, You believe in God, you believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Now, the language that Jesus was using as he spoke to his disciples, and as it's recorded for us, is that of Hebrew wedding tradition. The bridegroom who would be espoused to his bride-to-be, his future bride. There would be an engagement, and then the bridegroom would go away and prepare a place where they would live and at an hour that the bride wouldn't know the bridegroom would then return and take the bride and and the, the marriage would happen and he would then bring her back to the father's land where they would go on and live in, in their thing and jesus used this language of a marriage as he spoke to his disciples and how he would be departing after making promise to them of the eternal nature of the life that he was given he departed that he might prepare a place for the bride, that he might come again and receive her to himself. Again, laying out this format of relationship that there would be a bride and a bridegroom. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is talking to the church about marriage, giving instruction to husbands and wives and talking about how to relate to each other and how to be successful in this thing called marriage. But then he lifts the veil off some theology a little bit. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 29 through 32, the Apostle Paul says, For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, clearly speaking of marriage, and the two shall be one flesh. And then he says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. That the relationship that the church has with Jesus Christ is that of a husband and a wife, a bride and a bridegroom, the most intimate of relationships, the two becoming one. And that is the future that we have. Paul, writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, and speaking concerning his ministry and his desire for them as a church, he says, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So Paul understood that that was part of his ministry, is the preparation of the bride for the time when the bridegroom would return to take his bride and to live happily ever after with her. So clearly from Matthew all the way to Revelation, this illustration of the bride and the bridegroom speaks clearly of the church 
and her relationship to Jesus Christ. And now here, in chapter 19, we have this wedding feast. He says, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. The wife is now prepared. She's adorned. She's ready. And then he elaborates in verse 8, and it says, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, dressed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Now, all world religions, other than Christianity, of course, I'm drawing a contrast here, you know, emphasize the need of man to purify himself. Whether it be through, you know, religious duties or dietary, uh, you, you know, rules and things that, that people do to try to kind of bring themselves up. Behavioral ideals and values that they would have, devotions and, and all these things that you work your way into a purer being in hopes that somehow your good will outweigh your bad or that your purity will arise to such a a level wherein God can accept you, where you can be arrayed in linen that would be considered righteous and that God would accept you. Now, Christianity differs from all of that and that it isn't our responsibility to purify and cleanse and make ourselves right enough and white enough that God can you know, reach us and and redeem us and, and take us because we've made it, but rather Christianity says that we were filthy, that we were dead in our sins, that when we were yet his enemies, that it was then that Jesus Christ died for us. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, Paul writing to a young pastor, he says, it is not, or for not by works of righteousness that we have done. Listen, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but by his grace he has saved us ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 paul says for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of god and not by works lest any man should boast that you had nothing to do with saving yourself that you couldn't be good enough that you couldn't earn enough points, that you couldn't outdo someone else. See, we succeed in the world by outdoing someone else. If you want to succeed in your workplace, just work harder than everyone else. It works. But in God's kingdom, it doesn't because you cannot ever make yourself right. If you keep the whole law, Jesus said, and yet you stumble in one point, you are guilty of the whole thing. I, I know I've told you this before, but I really believe that if there are books in heaven, like not the Bible, but other books that men have written on earth, I believe that the Pilgrim's Progress will be there. It, it has been for me the most helpful thing. John Bunyan, the 1600s, wrote it from prison. This allegory of the Christian life, and it is so complete and so thorough and so helpful. And there's a discussion in that book where Christian, who's kind of the main character, represents us, is having a conversation with Hopeful, who is another pilgrim, you know, who's saved, another saved man. And, and Hopeful is sharing his testimony with Pilgrim. And, 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 I mean, with Christian. And Christian kind of asks him, and he says, well, how did you, you know, come, come to get saved? And he's asking him these things. And he says, well, I was, I was terrible. I was a horrible man. And he said, the weight of my sin became so heavy on me that I just had to get out from under it. And he says, well, how did you get out from under it? And he says, well, I, I, what I did is that I reformed my behavior. 
I stopped swearing. I started going to church. I started to do things that were right. And, 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 I, and I started to help people out. And I just started to change my life. And Christian says, well, did it work? And Hopeful says, yes, but only for a while. And Christian says, really, it, it, why? Why did it only work for a while? And listen carefully because it illustrates the point I'm trying to make. He said, because I realized that all of my present reformations were not able to make up for all of my past sins. He said, if a man runs $100 into the shopkeeper's debt, and then after that pays for everything that he buys, that's great, but it doesn't undo the $100 that he still owed him from before. And he said, I realized that though all of my present reformations were good, it still didn't deal with the fact that I had sinned in the past. And then he said it went even further because what I also realized is that even in my present good, the things that I changed that I was doing right, at the bottom of them all, there were still selfish motives, sinful desires that I couldn't escape that were motivating even the very things that I was doing. And I realized that I was, I was damned even though I had reformed my behavior. And so Christian says, well, what did you do then? And he says, well, I counseled with Evangelist, who's another character in the story. And he said, evangelist told me that I needed to call out to God that he would reveal to me Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ has done for me. And so Christian says, well, did you do it? And he says, yes. And Christian says, well, how? And he says, well, I prayed and I said, God, I'm, I come to you as a sinner and I pray that you would magnify your grace by saving a sinner such as me and letting the, the, the price of your blood be laid to my charge, to my account, and that, I might be, or that God might be glorified in the salvation of my soul. And Christian says, did it work? And he says, not at the first, nor at the second. He said, nor at the hundredth time that I prayed it. And he said, well, what did you do then? He said, what did I do? He says, what could I do? He said, if I left off and stopped praying and stopped asking God to reveal Jesus Christ to me, then I would die as a sinner. But if at least I kept on praying, maybe I would die, but at least I would die at the throne of grace. And he said, well, did God ever answer you? And Hopeful said, yes, he did. And he said, well, how? How did he answer you? He said he was at a low spot at a point that he said that perhaps it was worse than ever that he had felt in his whole life, the guilt and the condemnation that he was under because of his sin. And he said that he was there in a place and he said scripture began to come into his mind. Jesus saying, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. And him that believeth in me will be saved. And he said he realized for the first time that coming to him and asking for forgiveness and believing in him were one and the same. That in his coming to Jesus and begging for that forgiveness, that he was coming to Jesus and Jesus said he would in no wise cast him out. And he said that by faith, he grasped the promise of salvation in God. And he said that something happened inside of him at that point where the tears of joy began to well up in his eyes because he realized that by faith in Jesus Christ and what he had done in the word that was declared of forgiveness on his behalf, that he was saved. See, it isn't by anything that we can do. Our reformations, our church attendance, nothing we can do can ever save us, but it is completely and totally by the grace of God that was revealed in Jesus Christ as he died upon the cross and spilled out his blood and was judged for our sin and our transgression. 
And anyone that comes to Jesus Christ broken under the burden of their sin and cries out for forgiveness, he will in no wise cast out. He will save your soul, but you grab it by faith. It is those linens of righteousness that are spoken of here as the bride is adorned, not with that which she earned through her working and perseverance, but that which was granted unto her. Do you notice that there in verse 8? It says, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, verse 3, he said, now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. And you say, yeah, I hear that. I understand what you're saying, but listen, I'm not clean. I mean, if you could see my thoughts, if you could understand the vileness of my affections that I still have sometimes, the struggles that I have with sin, and sometimes the secret desire I have to chase out after it, you would see that I'm not clean. No matter what you're telling me that the Bible says, I know what's going on really inside. Listen, join the club. Because the Bible says that we are fallen, that we are in this flesh, and that as long as we are in this flesh, the Bible says, it uses words like we are corruptible, that we are mortal, that we are defiled. It says that our most righteous acts are like filthy rags before God. But the good news is, in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, Paul, speaking of this redemption, he says, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Them he also, or them whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now, do you notice there that there is past, present, and future in that verse? That he called you when you were lost in your sins, your past life. He justifies you in the presence, the present situation that you are. And it says, and it speaks of your future. It says, them he also glorified as though it's already done. What that means is that when you come to Jesus Christ and you are placed in him, your sins are forgiven past, present, and future. That means that all of the uncleanness that we struggle with, that we wrestle with, that we hate, that we loathe in because it's burdening us so. At one point, it will be changed. When? You say, when? When I'm 50? <laughs> when? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52 through 57. I think I put a little post-it in here. I sure hope so. I did. Paul says this. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Changed. Do you hear that? Changed. For this corruptible, this vile, sinful flesh that I can't escape, this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That there is a day coming, Saint Christian, when you will be arrayed. It will be granted unto you. Your vile mind will be washed and cleansed. 
The memories that plague you of things past, things that you've heard, things that you saw, thoughts that you've had, experiences that plague your past will be erased from view, erased from memory, and righteous robes, clean and pure, will be granted unto you, and the sting and the death of sin will be gone. What a blessed day that will be. And I will tell you, I am young. You guys know that I'm a puppy compared to many of you. I'm not trying to insult you, you know. But what I am realizing is that as I get older, the vileness of my past plagues me more and more. And I can't wait to be free of it. And the day is coming when it will be no more. When His grace will be so magnified in the removing of that stain from within me. I'm so looking forward to that day. He says, these are the true sayings of God. Well, verse 10, it says, And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, John is overwhelmed at this point as he, I don't know, it doesn't even tell us who he's seeing here and who is speaking. We don't even know. But John is so overcome by what he hears and what he's seeing that he falls down overwhelmed and he begins to worship this speaker, whoever it is. And quickly that speaker, as we see so often in the Bible, says, no, 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 don't do that. Get up quick. You know, I'm not God. Worship God. Worship God. The second commandment is that you shall worship the Lord your God. That worship is something that is reserved for God alone. We read in uh, you know, John chapter 4 when Jesus met the woman at the well. That Jesus said to her that the Father seeketh such that will worship him in spirit and in truth. Worship is something that is reserved for God only. Anytime throughout the Bible that we see a man or an angel being worshipped or bowed down before, that person, if they know Christ or they, they know the Lord, they say quickly, don't do that. You know, I'm just a servant or I'm just an angel. I'm just one like, that's like you. Worship, serve, fear God. In fact, the one who didn't was Herod. And you know what happened to him when he received the worship, you know. It wasn't a pretty picture. But it's interesting to me that as you read through the Gospels, And you see Jesus over and over again. We read that Jesus was worshipped. It tells us in Matthew 2.11 that the Magi, that they came and they worshipped him. It says in Matthew 8, chapter 2, that there was a leper who came to be cleansed and he fell at the feet of Jesus and worshipped him. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 18, Jairus, that ruler of the synagogue whose daughter had died, it said that he came and he worshipped him. Peter and the rest of the disciples, when Jesus came to them walking on the water and calming the raging storm that was around them, it says that they worshipped him. And yet never do we see Jesus saying, see thou do it not. Worship God. Why? Because Jesus was God. That God was manifested in Jesus Christ. Come down in human form, to reveal the Father unto us. I have more to say about that, but I don't have time to say it. So, verse 11. And it says, And I saw heaven open, and, oh, yes, verses 11 through 16. This is kind of the moment we've been waiting for, the second coming. Here it is. You ready? Now, you say, wait a minute, the second coming, stop for a second. 
I want to ask about that. The rapture, the return. What's the deal here? What are we calling the second coming? Because, you know, we as the Christians, we're waiting for that blessed hope when the trumpet sounds, the doors open, and we're caught up. And, and to us, we're saying that's the second coming. Jesus is coming. But here, as we come to verse 11 here in chapter 19, this is the real second coming in the context of Jesus is coming back to earth again. So which is it? How do we figure this out? Here's the deal with the second coming. There's one second coming, but there's two aspects of it. The first is the Lord is coming in the clouds for the church. He's not going to show up physically or be present here with us terrestrially, you know, kind of in an earthly fashion. But there will be the trumpet. We will be caught up and we will ever be with the Lord. That's the rapture. He's coming in the clouds for the church. Then seven years of tribulation happens on earth. And at the end of that time, then Jesus will come back now with the church. He will set his feet down upon the Mount of Olives. The Bible says that it will split in two. And then he will march and he will put an end to the battle of Armageddon that has been, you know, ensuing throughout the second half of the tribulation and building up. That he will come and touch down at that time. So the rapture happens prior to the tribulation. The second coming happens at the end of the tribulation. That's what we see here in verses 11 through 16. It says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful. And true. And in righteousness does he judge and make war. Now, this is great because, you know, we keep finding out new names of Jesus in this little section of Scripture. The first name that's given for Jesus here in verse 11 is faithful and true. That he is called faithful and true. Georgia and I were having a discussion. Um, I, I don't know if it was yesterday or the day before, and we were just talking about New Testament Christianity. Well, what does New Testament Christianity really look like? I mean, do we really have it figured out in American churches? I mean, look at us. Are we like the quintessential picture of New Testament Christianity, the way that we conduct ourselves and the way that we operate? And so we began to kind of toss Scripture back and forth and, you know, kind of weigh out some of these things. And, and at the conclusion of the thing, she looked at me and she goes... Do we know anybody like that? And I was like, no. <laughs> you know, we, we really, uh, you know, I, I, we weren't saying that we were. And we were trying to scan all of the people that we have known in all of the time of our Christianity. And we, do we know anybody like that? No. We really don't. And you know, the fact of the matter is, is that as best as we'll ever have it, the only one who really is faithful and true is Jesus Christ. The only one that's worthy of any honor or affection or praise or is worthy of anything at all is Jesus. And I say that to caution you because many times we have the tendency as humans to want to look across the room rather than up above the room. And we kind of attach our picture of Christianity to someone who maybe seems to have it figured out. We see the way they conduct themselves or we hear the way they speak or we see that they have a particular gift or talent and we begin to say that person's got it figured out and so we kind of walk a while we watch a while we observe and we see their christianity and after a while it doesn't take long you start to see some holes in it and and what can happen if your perspective is wrong is that then you can become disillusioned is it really real I mean, they claim it, they say it, they talk a good talk, but look what they really are. 
And you can become disillusioned. You can start to get discouraged. But listen, let me tell you something. There is only one who is faithful and true. Even Paul, who we would hold up and say, now here's an example of a real Christian. Paul says, look, all these things that are laid to my credit, all these things that I could boast of in an earthly sense, he says, I'm not even going to take the time to do it because I do not consider myself to have arrived at anything. He said, but this one thing I do, and this is New Testament Christianity, I press towards the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That I never for one day in my life settle in and say, well, I, this is good. I'm, I'm kind of at a good place, a good elevation here in my Christianity. And I'm just going to glide my way to glory. I'm just, I'm doing all right. I've got, you know, some moral principles. I've got my church life in good balance with my work life and my family life. And, and I'm just going to glide to glory. You know, Paul never took that position. He said, I'll never in my life consider myself to have arrived at anything boastworthy. This one thing I do, I press towards the mark. I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of his suffering. I want to be conformed to the image of him. I want to know this God. This omnipotent, glorious, gracious God. I want to know him. And it's then that you'll have a good Christianity. When your eyes are in the right place on him who is called faithful and true. There's only one. And in righteousness doth he judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. Let me ask you, where did he get those crowns? There are five times in the Bible that it's told that we obtain crowns. There's the crown of life, the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory, and there's five of them that there are crowns. And the Bible says that when we stand before him, we will be given crowns. We will rule and reign with him. But then when we stand before him, it says that we will cast our crowns before him and we will cry, thou art worthy. And when Jesus returns, he's going to be wearing our crowns. And I'm real glad. And he had a name written, here's the second name, that no man knew but he himself. And I don't know why John tells us this, if he's not going to go ahead and tell us the name. But I think it's an indication that for all of the ages to come, there will still be things about him, facets of his nature and things of his person that we'll be learning, that we'll be observing, that we'll be basking and taking and drinking in. It will never get old like our marriages do here on earth where we say, oh, that old bag, you know, or whatever it is. I would never say that about Georgia, you know, because. Verse 13. (laughs) And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name, third name, is called the Word of God. Now, if you want to understand this vesture dipped in blood, you can read Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 through 6. We don't have time, but you can write it down and look it up. But you can't overpass the fact that his name is called the Word of God. (coughs) Throughout Scripture, the name is reflective of the nature. People would name their children things that they hoped to see in their nature. People would call God things that they observed and received of his nature. And if you want to know the nature of Jesus Christ, I can tell you where you can find out. The Word of God. Because what it reveals is the heart of God, the person of God, the nature of God. It's revealed in the Word of God. And my prayer is that you are people of the Word of God. That you drink deep the fountain, the water of life. 
that it's a hunger and a thirst. Like David cried in Psalm 42. He said, deep cries out to deep. I want to know you. And it says that the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, here's the fourth name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. To the Philippians, Paul would write, and he would say that he is far above all principalities, all powers, all rulers, of this world, far above. Oh, but he's not bigger than the town board of Poughkeepsie. This is never going to happen. No, he's far above it. He's not far above my boss who's tormenting me in the situation that I'm in. He's far above it. He's the king of kings. The heart of the Lord, the proverb says, is in the hand of, or the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it whithersoever he wants. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. There is no higher authority. And isn't it a comfort to know that we are called the bride of Christ? That we are in Christ. What a privilege. And now verses 17 through 19. The battle of Armageddon. And I know all the men are scooching forward in their seats. The battle, you know, we hear, oh, it's time to close. So let's close in prayer. We'll do that next. No, I'm just kidding. I can't leave you here. (laughs) And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. You remember a few chapters ago, you know, the the three frogs, the demon spirits that came out of the Antichrist and out of the false prophet and out of the dragon. And it says that they drew all of the kings of the earth and all of the people to the valley of Megiddo, the place of Armageddon where the war would be established, that they would come and that they would fight. These demons drawing all of those left on the earth to fight against the lamb, to fight against Jesus as he would come and return. And this war is ensuing. And it's incredible to me, you know, that here now, all of everything that's happened throughout all of Bible history, from the serpent in the garden who deceived Eve and brought upon man the fall, and everything that comes of it, all of the destruction, all of the torment, all of the sin, the pain, everything and all of it is coming to this climax right here. It's like reading the novel, right? And you know it's working towards this apex, this climax, when everything is going to come together and there's going to be an outcome. And this is it. The whole entire Bible has been pointing to and leading to this point, at least as it concerns earth and the destiny of planet earth. 
The beast is there, the kings of the earth, the armies gathered together, everyone there to make war against the Lamb. And it's all set up. The battle lines are drawn. The world on one side, Christ on the other. They're drawing towards each other. And then, verse 20, And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, which had deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image, And these both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. If you're like me, you're saying, wait a minute. You skipped something. Where's the battle? (laughs) You know, I mean, we see what happens to these guys, but where's the battle? It's not that. I mean, really, where's Peter? Where's Susan? Where's Edmund? You know, I mean, where's, you know, where's the battle? Where, where's Frodo and Gollum and, you know, where, what, what's going on here? Because we've been reading from Genesis to Revelation, waiting for this time, and there's no battle. Why? I believe two reasons. Number one, and this is more than likely the, the cause, maybe, you know, they're the same, who knows. But I think it'll be so quick and so decisive. You know, we kind of think sometimes, well, maybe Satan has a chance. You know, maybe he's got something. Maybe he's got this, like, strategy that we don't know about, and he really thinks he's going to win kind of a thing. No, no, no. It's going to be so quick, so decisive, so sure, that there's no need to even talk about it, that it's just going to be a complete bloodbath. You know, I I remember uh, a couple years, when I was a kid, I, I really had this thing. I really liked Mike Tyson. Now, it's kind of like coming to the age of awareness in sports at the time that, you know, he was kind of climaxing in his career, and he was untouchable, and I was just fascinated by the way he could just knock these people out, you know. And so, a couple of years ago, I ordered his entire career on DVD. It was a real good deal, and, you know, I thought, well, this is good entertainment, you know. So, I, we, me and Georgia, we sat down, and she's not really so much into it, but, you know, you, you got to, like, watch it with someone, right? So, I'm like, check this out, watch this, you know. And I remember this one particular fight, it was kind of early on, you know, like before he really got big, but, but yet everybody was kind of watching him, and he fought this guy named Donnie Long. And I remember seeing this thing because this guy was like, I, I nicknamed him Disco because he had this huge, big, like, you know, hair thing, and, you know, and he was there, and he's like just kind of like, you know, like dancing, you know, like he was somewhere else, you know, he wasn't in a boxing match, you know. And, and I remember that the camera was kind of on him in his corner right before the bell. And he had this, like, stupid smile on his face. And he looked over at the camera, and he winked. He went, like that. And I remember I said to Georgia, I said, he just lost the fight right there. It's over. You know, and sure enough, the bell rings. In nine seconds, he's on the floor cold. He's gone, you know. Because while he's over there, like, just kind of dancing, like, it's all going to work out. You know, I, this guy's nothing. He's toast. You know, there's Mike Tyson over there, like, you know, he's waiting for it, you know. And, and then, you know, the bell, boom, punt, bing, it's over. He's on the ground, lights out, you know. And I think one of the reasons why there's nothing in between verses 19 and 20 is because that's how it's going to (laughs) be. Satan winks like, yeah, I got this. (laughs) Jesus shows up on the scene. Boom, it's over. Beast, false prophet in the lake of fire. Done, complete. Wipe the hands, let's go. Let's move on. That's kind of the entertaining theory. (laughs) More likely, I think God left it out on purpose. Ezekiel, dear, I don't even know where I am. Ezekiel chapter 18, 
verses 31 and 32. The prophet, speaking in the name of the Lord, he said, Cast away from you all your transgressions, whereby you have transgressed. And make ye a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Therefore turn yourselves and live. In chapter 33 of the same book, and I didn't put the scripture up on the thing, but he goes one step further and he says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That he doesn't rejoice to see the destruction of anyone. That his desire isn't that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Paul would say in Romans chapter 10, speaking again, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and again saying people, and you would not. The heart of God is that all would come. There is no one so vile. There is no one so far defiled and so far destroyed or decimated in their soul that God cannot save them. He's omnipotent. He's the God of all flesh. And I believe he probably just said, don't write it. Don't write it. Verse 20, we'll write what happens to the beast and the false prophet. Their destiny, they're thrown into the lake. They're thrown alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. We'll visit this lake of fire again in chapter 20. And it says, And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Next week, as we get into chapter 20 and 21, we will see the destiny of Satan. What's going to happen to this dragon? We'll see the millennial reign of Christ, thousand years of peace and prosperity on earth. And we'll see the great white throne, that throne of judgment that is pictured in so much biblical literature and poetry. We'll see that throne and what takes place before that throne. But as, as we close, just a final thought. As we look at chapter 19, the end of the world as we know it is before us. The culmination of where everything that we are, are and are living in and, and, and that we taste of and handle in our lives today, all of it has its culmination here in this chapter, in chapter 19. And in that, there's an incredible contrast that's painted for us, that's right there. On the one hand, you see a multitude in heaven that's united in their praise towards God. They're at perfect peace with what has been and what is, and they know what's coming. They're clothed in His righteousness. They're made white and perfectly clean. They're secure and eternally blessed in His presence. And they're feasting at the marriage supper of the Lamb. On the other hand, in this chapter, there's another multitude on earth that's quaking with fear and rage having survived thus far through the judgments of God and brought to this place, this battle, this epic battle that will end all battles. A multitude of people that's lost, that has no hope, that don't even know why they're there doing what they're doing. They've been deceived. They've been beaten. They've been drawn to this battle. And in the outcome of it, they're going to be the supper. They're not going to the supper. They will be the supper for the birds and the fowls of the air. God paints this picture for us at the close, the closing chapter of planet Earth, that when it all is said and done, at the end of the road, you will be in one of two places. 
you will either be among the multitude of those that have been redeemed and blood-bought and clothed and secured, or you will be among the multitude that's been deceived and drawn and beaten and destroyed. And I believe that God places that picture before us on purpose because he declares, he cries to us who are still alive now before the rapture, before the judgment, before this day and he says, choose this day who you will serve. He has paid the price in full for you to be saved. That you don't have to endure that wrath. You don't have to be in that place. You don't have to be lost you can come to Jesus Christ and just like hopeful in the pilgrim's progress, the tears of joy can flood through the eye gate and life can fill your soul as you realize that you're saved, you're forgiven, that you have a relationship with the God of heaven. Old things are passed away. All things become new. Self is traded in as the cross is embraced and a new life in Christ is adorned, brought upon me. I pray if you haven't come to know Jesus Christ yet, that God would burn this imagery into your mind. That as you go on your way, you would not be able to stand under the burden of the destiny that your sin is bringing upon you. May God give us wisdom that we might, like Paul, those of us that are saved, that we would never say, you know what, I'm going to glide to glory. But that we would say, Lord, let me press towards the mark of the high call. Let my life be worthy of the gospel. That means of the same worth, that if you put the gospel on this side of the scale and my life on this side of the scale, that the two things are of equal worth. Lord, let it be. May I press towards that mark. You're the God of all flesh. May God give us wisdom. Let's stand and pray together. Father, so much to think about, so much to ponder, so much to digest as we consider the things that we've heard tonight. As we prayed in the beginning, Lord, that the Spirit of God would give life through the Word of God. We ask that now these things that have been spoken, this truth that's been shared, that it would find its place within our soul and that it would bring forth and bud and that there would be much fruit in our lives as we go forward from this place. We ask tonight, Father, that this would not just be another Bible study, another sermon that we've heard, another hour, hour and a half that we've put in, but that, Lord, you would make this to bear much fruit. We pray that you would help us, that you would give us wisdom. that we would love you with all of our heart, mind, and strength. Let us be worthy of the name Christian. And give us a burden, a passion for those souls. Help us to see people the way you see them. And empower us to reach them. Give us the strength to be bold, the wisdom to be gracious, the ability to live Christ in such a way that they see the light that we have. Please help us, we pray tonight. And go with us. Give us travel mercies. I pray that we would have a blessed week. That we'd experience your favor. That we'd be filled with your love. We ask these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.